what we're going to do this semester is a little bit out of ordinary. You heard a little bit about it. Um, usually what we do in RUF is we pick a book or a narrative in the Bible and we just march straight through it. Once every four years, uh, in almost any RUF you go to, they will do a series on relationships, which is more topical in nature, which means we're going to jump around in Scripture in different places. Uh, and it is relationships broadly speaking. So it will involve things like dating and marriage and sexuality, but also friendship uh, and community, um, even parent relationships, things like that. Uh, and we want to see how the Bible speaks into these things um, and here's the reason why, I, I, I kind of don't think I have to prove the reason why, it's something we think about all the time. It's something Katie and Teddy and I talk about with y'all all the time. It's something we talk to people about all the time. Relationships are where life is lived. Um, there are a lot of scripts, there are a lot of narratives that are telling us what relationships should look like, what romance should look like, uh, what love is what sex should look like, what marriage should look like, what family should look like, what friendship should look like. There, the culture has thousands upon thousands of scripts and narratives that we're taking in every day um, and are shaping how we think about relationships. For that reason, I think it's vital that we look to Scripture and see what God has to say, see about relationships. But here's another reason why, not just because we swim in those, but because there's actually a higher purpose, according to Scripture, to our relationships. Uh, the goal for this semester, if you're here throughout the semester and encounter the things we're going to encounter in Scripture, is for you to feel more alive in your relationship with God, for it to become more vibrant, for it to become deeper, and for it to become richer. Because one of the things we'll see tonight, but throughout the whole semester, is that when connectedness occurs, real, rich, functional connectedness occurs, and love real, rich, functional love happens inside of our relationships here among each other. Um, if, if you saw Les Mis, which you should because it's amazing, um, John Valjean says it at the end that to love another person is to know the face of God. That the purpose of us relating well to each other is both to enjoy those relationships, but it actually also gives us contours of who God is. And so we want to talk about the relationships because according to the Bible, when, wit, when rich, real, loving friendships, relationships, romances, marriages break out, actually vital understanding, rich understanding and powerful understanding of who God is breaks out in our lives. There's a vertical dimension to our horizontal relationships. And in some sense, that's actually the overarching purpose to all of this. Uh, before I read... Scripture, I'll say one more thing that I'll say a couple times during the semester, and I won't say it enough, so hear me now. I won't say anything original to me. I have no new thoughts. Um, uh, that, that's actually something we're committed to in RUF. We're suspect of new thoughts. We believe that God and His Word is enduring and living and unchanging. Um, I am borrowing from older, wiser men than me, men like Les Newsom and Tim Keller and John Stone and uh, a great friend, Chad Scruggs. They all ripped off somebody else. Uh, they ripped off Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin and Martin Luther, and those guys ripped off Augustine, and Augustine ripped off Paul. So we feel like we're in good company. Um, but I say that to say I'm, I'm not going to be able to reference the people I'm stealing material from enough. So just know, none of this is mine. Um, and, and, and hopefully we'll never encounter anything that is my new thought. Um, <laughs> that's a dangerous place to be. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Genesis and then a quick passage from uh, Ephesians, and then we'll talk about it. 
Genesis 1, this is the creation account. In Genesis 1, you have this big picture of God creating the whole world. And then in Genesis 2, you have a zoomed-in, frame-by-frame picture of His creation of man. So I'm going to read a couple of verses from Genesis 1, and then a couple of verses from Genesis 2. Uh, This is the end of the creation story. God gets to the end. He's made everything else. And He says, And now, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in His own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, He created them. This is from Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. So I'm going to make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to... I'm skipping ahead to verse 21. uh, Caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he took one of his ribs and closed it up in his... In, uh, in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought, to her, brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Lastly, uh, from Ephesians Ephesians 5, just a couple of verses. This is Paul reciting that familiar phrase from Genesis. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But know that this mystery is profound, and actually what I'm talking about is it refers to Christ and the church. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've chosen to speak to us truthfully. And I pray as it confronts us and as we consider it, dear God, um, that if I say anything foolish, it would be forgotten, dear God, and your Holy Spirit would attend to your teaching of your word and would attend to our hearts and teach us your truths about the world, about relationships, how we relate to you. Be with us, dear God. Please teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, A couple of days ago at Christmas, I was hanging out with a cousin of mine, and he pointed me to this article In the Harvard Business Review, they have this annual um, journal they put together in the Harvard Business Review of their 10 must-reads of the year. And a uh, professor there at the Harvard Business School is a guy named Clayton Christensen. And this was the first article, I think, in the 2010 um, Harvard Business Review's must-reads of the year. He writes this article, first one, and this is what he says at the very beginning. He talks about, he was a Rhodes Scholar, Uh, he's now at Harvard Business School, professor there. He uh, cons- does a lot of consulting at major corporations on, on big levels. He's had a very big impact. Some of his theory about technology and innovation, y'all probably have encountered here. Um, and he urges this in the Harvard Business Review. He says, y'all need to know something about my time as a Rhodes Scholar. I spent an hour a night during my time as a Rhodes Scholar thinking and praying about my purpose seeking to understand it. And I was conflicted about whether or not I had an hour every night away from my studies, but I stuck with it. And if I had sent, listen to what he says, if I had spent an hour each day learning the latest techniques for mastering the problems of autocorrelation and regression analysis, I would have badly misspent my life. I apply the tools of econometrics several times a year. I apply my knowledge of my purpose of my life every single day, every minute of every day. That hour of contemplation every day during the busiest school time in his life, he would say is the most useful thing he's ever done. At the end of the article, he says this, I have a pretty clear idea 
of about how my ideas have generated an enormous revenue for companies that have used my research. I know that I've had substantial impact in the business world, but this past year I was confronted with cancer, and when I was confronted with cancer, it's been interesting to see how unimportant that impact is to me now. I've concluded that the metric by which God will assess my life is not the dollars, but the individual people that I've been in relationship with. Don't worry about the level of individual prominence you've achieved. Worry about the individuals that you've connected with. That's a Harvard Business School professor. And what I want you to hear what he is saying is this. Life is in relationships. It is primal. It is the essence of humanity to be connected. It is far more important than anything else you will do at Stanford or anywhere else in your life to have healthy, rich relationships. It is what will get you in touch with your humanity and your purpose. And there is a... I don't want to harp on this, but you know this, and I'm going to sound like I'm harping on it. There's a disease here at Stanford. It is, it's contagious. It's irresistible. It's so... It's so deeply inbred in us in, in the water here that everybody's drinking on the Kool-Aid and no, it's so omnipresent that nobody questions it. And that disease is simply the belief that your life is what you achieve. That your value as an individual is your drive and it's your new ideas and it's your net worth and it's your degree and your GPA and your grad school prospects. That in those places, if you're successful, you're going to be self-actualized. You're going to be self-realized. You're going to be fulfilled. And that's a lie. Those things are good. We're not saying they're bad. We're saying when you put the weight of your life in those things, you will die. You can be wildly successful by that Stanford metric and yet be completely out of touch and disjointed and disintegrated and unfulfilled and utterly insecure as a person if your relationships are in disarray. The the world is full of unhappy, successful people. Because simple, even good accomplishment, we're not even saying the accomplishment's bad. Good accomplishment can't carry the weight of your humanity. But on the other hand, if you're rich in relationship, if you are settled and secure and happy and fulfilled, regardless of whether or not you're Mark Zuckerberg or you're a barista at Starbucks, you're rich. And this is a typical, this is how a lot of my conversations go um, with y'all as I've gotten to know you. Almost 100% across the board in my conversations and relationships. Y'all are accomplishing much. When we talk about that, I hear about it. I hear about your classes. It's amazing. It's interesting. It's cool. I hear about the startups and all that kind of stuff. And you're preaching to yourself in your conversations with me. I hear it, and I think you know it. You're preaching to yourself that, like, here's my amazing idea. Here's my amazing major. Here's what I'm energized about. And I will be most fully alive and most fully human and self-realized when I reach this kind of world-changing or elite level of work potential that I have. You're preaching it to yourself and you're trying to convince me of that when we're hanging out. And this is what happens over the course of multiple conversations with each of you individually. This happens almost across the board. As I get to know you, as you get to know me, as you begin to trust me a little bit and I begin to trust you, this is what happens you start to let the curtain you start to pull the curtain back a little bit you've given me that facade that facade you want me to believe and that facade that you want to believe but as we begin to trust each other you pull that curtain back a little bit and you know what happens we start talking about relationships 
You start talking about the loneliness you feel on campus. You start talking about the longing for a companion. You start talking about your family life. You start talking actually about who you really are. The facade you gave me earlier is how you wish the world was. Because you, you know what's easy? Grades and work. Those are easy things to manage. And man, if that's who you were, is what you made of your grades and what you made of your work and your career, life would be easy, wouldn't it? And so you want to believe, we all want to believe that's who we are, but what happens is once you start to get to know somebody and you feel free to talk about who you really are, you start talking about relationships because that's who you are. That's where you find yourself. Everybody who's considered transferring, which is like 87% of this room, everybody considers at some point in college, there's nothing wrong with that. The reason everybody considers transferring is because of relationships. It has nothing to do with what's going on in the classroom. It's because you're lonely. It's because things haven't worked out relationally for you on campus. Everybody has the same freshman narrative. You come excited the first few weeks, right? There's all this potential for new relationships and new connections, and Stanford's amazing, and it really, really is. But what happens at some point during your freshman year is this. You, the newness of everything that's going on in your hall with these new people you've met, it wears off, and you look around, and you see juniors and seniors who have good friends. And you're like, I don't have that. What's wrong with me? The newness is gone, and that's when you start to entertain whether or not I can last here. It's because your relationships has nothing to do with what's going on in the classroom. And it's hard. And I get it. I get why you feel that way. In some sense, and actually, I'm trying to do this. There might be opportunities later in the semester. What I want all of y'all to do is meet some really rich, unhappy people and meet some really, really poor, happy people. You need to know they exist. And in fact, that's kind of the trend. And the Bible even says it. It's harder to be happy as a rich person. It's harder to get into the heaven of God to be connected to Jesus as a rich person than as a poor person. Not because rich or being poor is of any moral value one way or the other. But when you have everything, you start to think you don't need God. And this is really just the primacy, our first point. And it's really this, you're made for relationships. We're made for relationships. And this is, everything I've said is just confirming the first truth Scripture establishes about humanity in those passages in Genesis. God speaks in a very curious way in verses uh, 26 and 27 in Genesis. At the very beginning, God speaks. It's very odd. He never speaks this way at any other point. It says, God, singular, said, let us, see the plural creep in, create man in our He's referring to himself in plural again, image. So what's happening right here? The Bible is teaching us is teaching us something about man by teaching us something about God. To understand the creature, the creature, God's saying you need to understand the creator. And he's giving us this, this brief preliminary glimpse into a doctrine that's actually going to unfold over the course of scripture called the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is Trinitarian, that God is a community in and of themselves. We're not going to go into that in depth tonight. That is like 13 large groups to cover that kind of mystery. But I do want to make this point. is simply that God is establishing, as he creates man, he says, let's create man in our image. When God creates man and says, he's going to be like me, God refers to his communal self. He's teaching us something right there. God is community. He's three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And He's making us as communal beings as well. 
That's what he's teaching us. Uh, basically, every religion, I don't know them all, but in some regard, every religion has some kind of statement or doctrine that articulates that God is love. Love, by definition, is a relational enterprise. It requires, at minimum, two parties. For love, then, to exist, community has to exist. Follow me here. One of the primary central theological differences between Christianity and every other religion is that Christianity says God in himself is one God and yet a community. By implication, he always was and has been and his essence has always been love. If God is not a community, his essence could not have been love. Love could not have been a characteristic of his until he created something else. But what we're saying is that the core of reality, the very center of reality, is a communal God, community in and of himself, and that love is his essence. A religion that claims that God is not a community cannot say that God in his essence from eternity past is love. They can only say, no, God learned love later. We're made in his image. We're made for love. We're made for community. We're made for relationship. That's the reason we want to transfer in our most lonely moments is because we feel like, I'm not even human in this loneliness. I need to leave here. I need to find somewhere where I can be connected. Some of y'all tonight, you'll decide whether or not you want to come back to RUF next week, not because of anything I said, not because of the music, not because of anything other than the fact you'll feel like you didn't connect with anybody here the way you wish you had. Your expectations about how a relationship might occur tonight will define your involvement next Tuesday night. Right? Because you walked in and you see some people that are friends, and it's like, ah, these people know each other and I'm not a part of it yet. Okay, y'all, we all feel disconnected. I'm afraid walking in here. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what to talk about. And I really, really, this is really honestly true. I feel like an idiot when I have to talk about Alabama football. I love it, but I know y'all think like, this guy needs to find something else to talk about. I'm so insecure about it. I'm not going to talk about it the rest of the night, probably. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) The reason we can't go a single hour of the day without contemplating romance is because we were made for community. You're made for love because you're made in God's image. The reason social life dominates your emotional thought life, who you are, what you're doing on the weekends, because you were made for community. The reason that sins done against you in your family, in your upbringing, whether they're physical, emotional, sexual, whatever they are, things that have done to you that are dark, the reason they define you, even though you don't want them to, the reason they become so defining, is because when relationships are abused, the very essence and your very identity as a human has been attacked. Why do you constantly think about guys and girls? Because you're made for community. Because you're made for relationship. And community involves all kinds of relationships. Friendships, romance, lovers, even authority relationships. Right? Why are the best and the richest and the most alive moments the moments when friends are together and laughing? you're made for relationship. That's where you feel the most integrated in understanding of who you are. Why are the richest and the most alive and the most powerful moments the intimacy of lovers? Because you're made for that. You're made for it. Relationships, when they're rich and when they're healthy and they're functional and they're deep, when you're in them, you're tapping into, into 
vitality, into divine vitality, life-giving. You've tapped into the image of God. What Christianity is saying here, what God is saying is this, is that the very core of reality itself, the thing that holds all of it together is love. Is the triune love of the God for himself and the triune love of God for his people and God's love, uh, God's people love for each other. The heart of reality is connectedness. It's the essence of being human. So here's an implication or an application. Before I get there, from one other passage from Genesis 2 that we remarked on. If you read the Genesis creation account, there's a chorus line to it. God creates all these things, and then after he creates it, he says, and God saw it, and behold, it was good. He saw what he created, and behold, it was good. He saw what he created, and behold, it was good. It's this chorus line. And then what happens is, when he creates man, that passage in Genesis 2, it's very rhetorically disruptive when he creates man, because he says, and he looked at man, and saw that he was alone, and it was not good. When you read it, and you see the flow you, that passage stands out because it disrupts everything that's been going on. He's drawing our attention to say, I created a man, you need to see something. When there was one man there in perfect creation in Eden before sin and rebellion entered in the world, there was no death, there was no pain, there's no frustration. God said, but there's one thing that is not good, man alone. And so what does he do? God says, the only way that I can improve perfection is to add marriage to it. That's what happens in Genesis 2 says, I can improve Eden by adding marriage. And he creates woman, and the first marriage ceremony happens right there. We're made for relationship. And I mean all kinds of relationships. Implication slash application, you will find yourself. You will understand yourself. You have the capacity to be transformed only inside of relationships to know who you are, to find your identity, to claim your humanity, even to find redemption. It happens inside a relationship. Hear me well in this. I'm going to kind of be careful and kind of not be careful. Um, Did I cover my bases there? Um, There's some appropriate time for self-reflection. You should do that. You should do that daily. I try to do it daily. But private self-reflection is not where you're most alive, it is not where you're most spiritual, it is not where you're most human, and it is not where you'll find yourself. That goes against Scripture to say or think that way. Private self-reflection is a little bit like this. If you're a musician and you're trying to learn a complicated piece, maybe you'll listen to it. You'll listen to an MP3 of it. And that's helpful, and that's good, and you're really doing something when you listen to it. But you know what you're not doing when you're listening to it? You're not being a musician. You're not making music. It's good, But in some sense, it's less real than the real thing. So it's good to reflect. It's good to read scripture. It's good to meditate. You should do those things. But you actually need to recognize that something less than real is actually happening during that time. That real life is lived right here between people. And there's this notion in Christianity, but not even in Christianity, beyond Christianity, that somehow you find yourself or that somehow... What you need to be self-actualized or realized or understand real things about yourself and the world is to get away and to leave and to disengage relationships. The very opposite happens. It's inside relationships you find out who you are. The reason that we get frustrated inside of relationships and then conclude, I need to leave relationships in order to find out who we are. Now, I I believe, we all really believe we're going to find out who we are when we leave relationships. 
I, I know that's what you hope and you expect, but it's not going to happen. What happens, what's actually happening is this. We're inside of a community, we're inside of relationships, and we actually find out who we are and we don't like it, so we run. You don't like who you found out you were when you moved in with your roommate. In the group of friends that you want distance from, what happened was you got into that group of friends and you found out who you were. And now you want to get away from it. The reason we run away from relationships is not to find out who we are. It's actually because we found out who we are and we don't want to be that person anymore. And you know where you can be a great person? By yourself. (laughs) We are all amazing people by ourselves, aren't we? How many times have you sinned against anybody by yourself? Never. Never happened, right? And and, and I recognize this as well. Because what I'm saying is you've got to be in a relationship. And and I'm not just talking about romance. I'm not talking about lovers. I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about everything. You need to be connected. You need to be known. Who I am, if you want to know who Elizabeth and I are, and it'll be frightening for you to come and learn about who we are, come to our house from 5.30 to 7 in the afternoon. My children are exhausted. Their blood sugar is like through the floor. Uh, They they can't control themselves. They can't control their emotions. Um, Elizabeth and I are exhausted. We don't know what's going on. It's just chaos. And that's who we are. And it's not pretty. And I thought I was a certain type of person before I had kids. I thought I was... Basically laid back, had you know, had some had some things about myself I wanted to correct. It was actually in relationship and in very intimate relationships that I've now found out who I was. And it's hard. I don't like the person I'm finding out who I am. But here's what's also happening. Because I'm finding out who I am and then it's much darker than I thought. I'm crying out to Jesus a whole lot more. I'm confessing more deeply. I'm hoping more desperately. God's at work in exposing me as a terrible parent who's full of anger and really wants to withdraw from how difficult it is. And God, His goodness won't be thwarted by that. My children are in my life and they're revealing to me all these shortcomings and I'm finding in it that Jesus, Jesus is at work in me, as hard as it is. Here's what I want to say. Y'all, it is good to hate loneliness. Some of y'all are... Have longed for friends or longed for a, or for a companion or a lover for so long that you're at the end and you're thinking, I don't want to hope for it anymore because hoping for it is exhausting. Because I've been here for years and it hasn't happened for me, whether it's friendship, whether it's romance, whatever it is. And you think, you know what I can do? I can just stop hoping for it. Because it's too hard to hope for it and not have it. I understand that. Don't stop. Hate loneliness. It is good. To hate loneliness. It is good to seek friendship. It is good to want to have sex. It is good to long for romance. It is good to long for companionship. These are all straight from Scripture. There's an instinct that says to get mature, you need to get away from relationships. The exact opposite is true. The primary way to grow immature and hard-hearted is to leave relationships. If you want to be challenged, if you want to find out who you are, if you want to find hope for change, then be connected. Relationships are central to who we are as a person. As we interact and consider relationships, there's a lot of carryover from all the different realms of relationships that are going to teach us a lot about each other. So marriage is going to teach us about friendship. Friendship is going to teach us about broader community, things like the church and all that kind of stuff. 
and in the middle of that conversation, what I want to do is introduce the second point by asking the question of what is the purpose of relationship? And we're going to look at marriage to teach us a little bit about the purpose of relationship. And as we look at marriage, it's going to spill out into these other arenas. But I want you to hear me um, with a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of levity and not imply things that I might not be implying, even though my rhetoric is maybe a little bit over the top. You'll know I'm going to, you'll understand that statement here in a second. What is the purpose of relationship? From Genesis 2, but also from all of Scripture, I'm going to argue that the purpose of relationship is to get naked and enjoy each other. Now, notice the pronunciation. Naked and naked are two different things. I said naked, not naked. Now, if you know the difference, naked just means you don't have clothes on. Naked means you don't have clothes on and you're up to something. And we're proposing the latter, that the purpose of relationships is to be naked, that's the latter pronunciation, and to enjoy each other. You don't really see that coming, right, when you came to RUF. That's why we're so cool, right? (laughs) The purpose of being human, the place... Actually, I I mean everything I'm saying, by the way. (laughs) Um, Is to find yourself connected with life, uh, with light, to find yourself integrated and complete inside of a personal connection in which there are no more barriers. There are no more facades. There are no more coverings. There's no more deception. You are completely exposed. The first words that man has ever recorded speaking in Scripture, the first time man speaks in the Bible, is awesome. It's a celebration of the enjoyment of his wife. He's saying, I enjoy her. It's a love song. It's a powerful love song. It's a love song that if I, claimed, if I sang it or spoke it powerfully to Elizabeth right now, it would make us all uncomfortable, right? If I just said, Elizabeth, I'll do it. Elizabeth is bone of my bone. Elizabeth is flesh of my flesh. We all feel awkward right now, right? <laughs> it's Adam enjoying his bride. And what state is she in? She's naked and unashamed. They are naked and enjoying each other. You don't want to be the one guy that laughs during this thing. (laughs) Draws everybody's attention. They were naked and they're not ashamed. He saw every square inch of her body. And you know what prevented her from having any sense of shame at all? Is that when he saw every square inch of her body, he said, I love that. I love all of you. I see all of it. And I enjoy it all. They were naked and they were enjoying each other. Excuse me, naked and enjoying each other. They were exposed completely and enjoyed. And this is what, it, it, that actually mean that physically, but what's depicted physically is also really to carry into all the other aspects of their relationship. And it's really this. This is the principle at the root of it. It's depicted physically, and it should happen physically, but it should also happen emotionally and socially and even legally and even financially and even publicly to be known fully and to be loved completely. God has chosen to glorify himself. He didn't have to create the world, but he chose to create the world and delight himself by setting forth this central purpose of the created world, to connect people with each other and also with himself for nothing, for no other reason than to experience joy and to enjoy joy. 
And here's the deal. Connection cannot happen between you and another person, you and a friend, you and a lover, you and a parent, or you and God. Connection can't happen if we're hiding or if we're holding back or if we're playing facades. Connection requires exposure and knowledge. This is what you hear. This is what I've heard in friends' marriages that have fallen apart. One spouse cheats. One spouse uh, has led a double life, whatever it is. And then you hear the victimized spouse say this, I never knew who they really were. You see, they thought they were connecting, but because one spouse was hiding who they really were, connection can't happen when one person is hiding. So one spouse held back, one spouse maintained secrets and shames and addictions and idols, and they refused to be known. And when you refuse to be known, you refuse to be connected. And when we refuse to be known because of maybe there's shame that's holding us back, we can't connect. You were made to be known. But relationship is more than exposure. It's more than just being known. It's being known and then being loved once you are known thoroughly. And to kind of get there, and this is, uh, again, tonight I'm introducing the whole quarter, so I'm not going to explain or make qualifications for everything, but there will be more discussion as the quarter goes on, and I would love to talk to you about these kind of things if, if there's anything that really upsets you or you're not sure what to think about. But in order to kind of get there, I want to kind of just talk through a, a generic dating narrative to begin to understand this aspect that you're made to be known and also loved. Um, you're, you're here at RUF tonight. Jack and Diane are here, right? Not Jack Doobie, just Jack and Diane generically from John Mellencamp's song. Um, <clears throat> you made acquaintance, you know, uh, you go to that, we go eat at the Axe and Palm afterwards. Y'all should join us. Maybe you go to the Axe and Palm afterwards. Um, Diane, she goes to RUF a lot. This is Jack's first time, but they enjoy talking at the Axe and Palm, so all of a sudden Jack decides he's doing RUF, right? And so he starts coming. You start texting, and then you, there's that delicate ballet of texting etiquette where you want to text a little bit more so that they know, like, hey, I'm kind of interested. We're not just friends, but you don't want to text too much. And so you've got to live within those boundaries because if you text too much, you're weird, you know? And so you're, you're managing that, like, what kind of texts are appropriate, what come across as appropriately flirtatious but not over-the-top flirtatious, but definitely just a little bit more. So, you know, I'm kind of throwing myself out there. So you walk through that ballet, and you... And, the flirting kind of persists. Um, you know a little bit. You begin to... They're a little bit more than simply an acquaintance or a friend. The, the flirting kind of gets cranked up. Um, you hang out more. You start off... You know, dates when the sun is up are, are kind of like less intrusive. So the coffee or the lunch date's like, oh, nothing's going on yet because the sun's up, right? <laughs> so you're not saying too much by getting lunch together, you know? So that's safe. Hey, this is all good stuff. I'm giving you all a good framework here. Run with this. Um, but, you know... Hey, lunch and coffee, you know, not, not too intrusive. Conversation's fun. Then all of a sudden you spend time when the sun's down, right? Anything you do when the sun's down is a little bit more intentional, a little bit more aggressive. This is good. Don't worry. I'm not saying anything one way or the other. Um, the conversation's fun. You start to learn about each other. You start to learn each other's histories and stories. You have great conversations about the things you like to talk about, whatever that may be. Um, and then all of a sudden you start to develop some stories together. And that's where things are really coming along. You know, y'all went and walked around Lake Log at like 12 o'clock at night. Like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. And it rained and you had to hide under a tree. And now you have this memory and it's kind of romantic and cool. These kind of things, right? And then at some point, you both separate from each other because you can't talk about it. 
you start to wonder, what is this? Right? What are we? Are we dating? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? How do we approach this? Maybe you have friends who've said something, right? What's going on there? What are y'all? And so there's this confusion that's entered in. All right, it's fine, but it's also confusing and frustrating because you're trying to figure out how do I answer that question without being weird. (laughs) And so there's affection, there's attraction, and there's growing intimacy, and there's growing knowledge of each other. You're beginning to know each other. And this is what's happening. As you start thinking, what is this? How do we call this something? What, What are we? This is what's happening. The world is screaming at you, and your own soul is screaming at you. This sounds a little bit simplistic, but follow me here. You have to label this. That's what's happening. Your soul is saying, we can't continue this without having a label, without formalizing it somehow. We have all kinds of labels we can use because we like what different labels imply because they all give you a set of expectations, right? So we're friends, friends with benefits, we're dating, we're Facebook official, we're hooking up. All those labels have different expectations that once you give it that label, you say, okay, now I understand the expectations. But what's happening, here's my main point is, do you see that you're driven to label or ratify your relationship? At some point, you cannot continue in the relationship without a ratification or a label. You get that. Or or what happens if you never do that is the relationship peters out and feelings get hurt and you don't know what to do anymore and you kind of just hate each other, right? If you refuse to ever acknowledge that at some point we have to call this something, we've got to come up with a word because we don't like any of the other words. We don't want to say dating. We don't say boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. I don't care. The point is, you're like, we've got to call this something. Something's drawn you together, this need to be connected. A little bit of exposure's taken place. Some affection is growing. A little knowing, and there's a little love going on at the same time. And why is this happening? It's because you're made for relationship, and the purpose, and the mature relationship, and the safe relationship, you're, you're made for mature and rich and safe relationships. Fulfilling relationship. The one, what you are fundamentally made for is being completely known and completely loved, completely exposed, completely naked, and enjoying one each other permanently. And you're doing it on every level, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And here's my first controversial point of the semester, maybe my biggest one. Hear it for a second without reacting. What you are longing for at this point in this relationship is that sweet place of being fully known and completely loved and dating or whatever you want to call it cannot bear the weight of complete knowledge and complete love. Because dating, by definition, here's some of the controversial points, just wait before you get too upset, dating by definition is not love. Dating by definition is not love. What you are longing for as you act out this relationship, and I'm not saying it's all bad, what you're longing for and what you're actually beginning to act out a shadow of is marriage. Because covenant is what we'll talk about a couple times this semester. Covenant is love. Desire is not love. Covenant, knitting yourself together is love. That desire to label is the desire to be in covenant, to have the relationship ratified or formalized. And so we come up with these fake small versions of what marriage is, and we call it that, so we continue to act out many marriages that are unhealthy. But in fact, we're not in covenant. Right? What is... 
the secure place of being completely exposed and completely known. It can't be dating. Dating is utterly unsafe because dating, by definition, is not commitment. Dating, by definition, is not commitment. And at first glance, you disagree with me because some of y'all are dating and you feel committed. And I get that, that you feel committed. And kind of what we're going to say a little bit is feeling committed is not the same thing as committed. You feel attached. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I have felt attached. I dated two girls for two years each before I met Elizabeth. I felt fiercely committed to them. I said things like we were going to get married. And I said things like I'll love you always. And I felt that genuinely. Just because I said it and felt it doesn't mean that we're really committed. And there's 100% objective proof that I was not committed to Nikki at Vanderbilt. You know what that proof is? She's not here. (laughs) You can't argue with me. I felt utterly and completely committed. Used all the words of commitment, all the actions of committed. You know what? I wasn't committed. Dating by definition is actually not commitment. Jack and Kristen, they feel committed-ish to each other. This is, these are real people, Jack and Kristen. I'm going to pick on them. They're the people who feel really awkward right now and their face is getting flushed. They're dating, or at least I hope they're still dating. Uh, here's the question. Is Jack perfectly within his rights? They're good friends. I can pick on them. Um, is he perfectly within his rights tonight and say, Thank you, Kristen. I appreciate your time. But tomorrow this is not going to persist. He is 100% within his rights with no repercussions to say, tomorrow I would like to take Gertrude out on a date. I don't know who a Gertrude is. She's fictional. Uh, there's not a Gertrude is there. I don't know. But he absolutely is 100% within his rights to go out on a date with someone tomorrow. Sam and Jessica. Where's Sam and Jessica? Where are y'all? There we go. Right in front. I'm looking in the back. What if Sam says that to Jessica? Can Sam leave? He can't without substantial legal, social, financial, and even ecclesiastical, that means church, consequences and repercussions. He can't do that tomorrow. He is not within his rights to go out on a date with someone tomorrow. And the reason why is because love is not a feeling, it's not desire. Love is covenant. Love is knitting yourself to someone spiritually, publicly, physically, financially, socially. Love is not the desire that you feel. The desire is not wrong, but we've misapplied a word when we describe it. And it's kind of like the Princess Brad. A lot of things are a lot like the Princess Brad. (laughs) That's actually true. It's amazing. But... We throw that word around inside of dating relationships, and I feel like Inigo Montoya, when he speaks to Vicini, and he says, you keep using that word, but I do not think that word means what you think that word means. (laughs) You're exposing yourself to one another inside of relationships, and your very instinct is to do that and then to label it something and formalize a relationship And so we come up with all these titles to call that, and then we start using this word love inside of those relationships, but we're not performing the fundamental action of love, which is covenant. Right? As a brief point of application, this this is just a glimpse where we're going later in the semester. What you're probably thinking is that we're heading down the road of, like, Britain's about to make dating really intense. Right? Like, we're all freaking out. I don't even look at somebody of the opposite gender right now. You know? Like... (laughs) 
friends saying we all want to get married to each other if we just look at each other. No. <laughs> you think I'm about to make dating really intense, and actually the intention is to do the exact opposite. Like, relax. <laughs> the, one of the main goals for this semester when you actually think about the issue of dating is to unburden dating to make it fun again and not so intense, to stop acting out many marriages over the course of 24 hours, 48 hours, or six months, or two years, and just actually enjoy friendship again. We actually want to unburden dating. We want to lighten the load on dating so that people can enjoy friendship again and, and not act out these tiny marriages where emotionally and physically you're taking all of your clothes off and you're acting out marriage, and yet you're not doing it within the safety of covenant. And you're, you're giving it these covenant terms like we're dating or girlfriend, boyfriend, these other kind of fake versions that make you feel like it's commitment when in fact it's not. You have not bound yourself to one another. What, what I hope happens is not that you all take dating too seriously. I hope you begin to take it more lightly. That you begin to enjoy friendships again with the opposite gender instead of freaking out and feeling like you've got to start acting married. No, you've never said that what you're doing is acting married, but you are. And I know that because that's what I did. And I know that because that's what we all do. Well, this is what I hope happens. I'm not going to give you at any point in the semester like rules for dating. This is not going to happen. Um, I don't think the Bible gives us rules for dating. Here's the closest thing I'll give to it. If you want to understand, if you want to know what should I do then, this is what you should do. Get some ice cream, go dancing, and then say goodnight. If you do that inside of your dating relationships or your exclusive relationships or whatever you want to call it, you will have an absolute blast. You really will. You'll have more fun dating if you just hang out a little bit and say goodnight and stop sharing all of your stories, all of your body, all of your emotions, all of your history and everything, taking all of your clothes off and asking, will you stay with me forever? Because they're going to say, I'll stay with you for 30 minutes and then I'm going home. You wanted to be safe because you're longing to be safe and you should rightly long to be safe. But you're safe inside of covenant, where Sam and Jessica are, where they are bound themselves and there are repercussions seriously, financially, publicly, socially, spiritually for them to come together and then to leave. This is love. It's inside of covenant. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I don't want to go too much further down the path. But if... if I'll, I'll say this, one last thing. If you think that you're, you know, you're in a relationship and it's progressing and you're beginning to wonder, maybe I do want to entertain the possibility of this kind of love, of, of covenant love, of ratifying or covenanting or moving towards marriage. My friend... Uh, Chad Scruggs, he's the RUF campus minister at SMU. He actually gives really great advice. If you're wondering, if you're getting toward that place, and like, is this, am I, is it time for this for me? Is it time for this for us? And you want to test that? Here, this is great advice. Join a church. Actually establish your membership in a church. That's what I mean. Don't just attend church. Join a church. Because what happens when you join a church, there's probably not a better place to figure out whether or not you're ready for marriage than in the membership of a church. Because when you join, you know what you do? You take vows to enter into and sit under the authority and the community of God's people. It's fun at times and it's messy at times. You're called to serve and you're called to be, to be served. And it's all in the context of a formalized covenant. Uh, most everybody in this room is dating the church right now. 
because you don't want to get too committed. Can you make and keep promises to God's people? That's a good first step into seeing whether or not you're maturing towards the prospect of marriage. All right. No more of that tonight because my point is simply this. The need and the actions of getting connected in these relationships is your soul screaming to you that you are made for the covenant of marriage. I want to be known and I want to be covenantally loved. So we act out that immature marriage without the bonds or the safeguards of marriage and it goes haywire. It's both electrifying and it's sickening at the same time. But what I want to show you is that you're crying to be fully known and permanently loved. And that's for marriage. And I want to get to this last point as we close up. We're going to look a little bit more in depth in Ephesians 5 as the quarter goes on. But we're just going to look at this one brief point that Paul makes tonight that we read from verses 31 and 32. I can get there. He he reiterates the Genesis passage, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. What's happening? Paul's actually saying this. He's saying, Your desire to be loved, to be known, and to be loved inside of marriage, it's sweet and it's beautiful and it's right, and you should long for it and you should enter into it, but that's not even the ultimate end. The desire for complete exposure, desire for complete knowledge, and in the face of that perfect love, well, ultimately marriage is just a signpost pointing to Jesus' love for his people. Ultimately, only God is the one who can see all the way through us and perfectly love us. The perfect full measure of being known and loved is in God's love for his people. The best marriages are not the end goal. The best marriages are just signposts. For everybody, for the people in the marriage and the people outside of the marriage. Here's the most profound expression of permanent, never stopping, never failing, always and forever love. Right before Jesus dies for his friends, right before he dies for his friends, he's with his friends and he says this, I want y'all to take a sip of wine with me. And he starts to do, you know what he starts to do? He starts to ratify his relationship with them to formalize his commitment to them. He says, I want you to drink this wine as a ratification of my covenantal love for you. And this ritual, it's not just an empty ceremony. This sign, this drinking of wine, it symbolizes my covenant to you because this covenant is made in my blood. If someone has died for you, can you ever doubt their love for you? You can't. Not only that, if someone has died in your place for suffering, for punishment, for consequences that you deserved so that you don't have to suffer, could you ever doubt their love for you? You can't. Even more so, what if they knew you all the way through? What if they knew your inner thought life in its entirety, even in the places where you don't want to admit that's part of you? What if they knew your anger and your addictions and your weaknesses and the history of all of those things? The things you don't even admit to yourself. What if they knew, saw you more thoroughly than you could even see yourself? And they died for you. Could you ever doubt their love for you? You couldn't. You never could. That's Paul's point in Romans 5. He says this. Here's love. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's what Paul says. For people sometimes will die for a good person. Maybe for a good person someone's willing to die. But God shows his love. That while we are sinners, 
Christ died for us. That is the expression of His covenant, His commitment to His people in its richest, deepest, most powerful form. That is where we are fully loved, or excuse me, fully known and fully loved. I've used this illustration before, but it, it's, I'll, I'll close with it tonight because it bears repeating. The best moment in our marriage um, that we've shared was the time in our first week of marriage on our honeymoon, Elizabeth and I, what happened in that time is we were more honest with each other than I ever thought was really possible. We shared the things that you think you're never going to share with anybody. The things that you're like, I can't, I don't even want to articulate that because just to say that about myself, I don't think it's, it's possible. I don't think I could even bear hearing the words come out of my mouth if I really reveal these things about myself. What we have done, what were in our hearts, everything. I never thought I was going to be able to, I, I just never thought this kind of disclosure that happened in our human, I never thought it was going to be possible in life. I always thought, we all think, there are going to be some things you just carry with you because there's no way anybody else could handle the disclosure of those things. There are things that I revealed to Elizabeth that if you learned about me, you'd never come back to RUF and you'd never talk to me again. And those things are not for you, but they are for Elizabeth. She's seen all the way through me. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I love you and I forgive you and I'm always with you. Y'all, I have amazing children. I have an incredible house. I'm in better shape than I was even when I was playing rugby in college. Alabama's won three of the last four national championships. (laughs) Y'all, right now, and I'm grateful, it's not of my own doing, God is good circumstantially to me. All those things are great. I'm grateful for them. None of that, not all of that combined, none of that is anything like having no more secrets. And with Elizabeth, I have no more secrets. being loved in spite of those secrets, having been forgiven of those secrets, knowing that those secrets, they've been acknowledged, they've been exposed, they've been forgiven, they've been set aside, and they can no longer tyrannize me. Ever again. That's what Elizabeth did for me in that moment. And Jesus knows more. And Jesus' love is greater. Keller says this, close with this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's what being loved by God is like. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Here's the application for tonight, real, real short. Just imagine that. If you're an unbeliever, if you're not sure what you think, the application is just this. Imagine that. Imagine what life would be like if you had no more secrets because you put them all out there and you just said, I forgive you, I love you. You know what, if you're a believer here tonight, our imaginations need to be reawakened again as well. We need to hold those things out there and see that in God, in Jesus, that really all the relationships we're going to talk about this semester, we're going to talk about them, really are signposts, small pictures of the greater love of Jesus' perfect knowledge of us and His perfect forgiveness. Let's pray.